0: Hi there, you're listening to The Sound Economy and I'm your host Emma Summer-Johnson. In this episode we speak to Johanna Wallenius, a professor at the Department of Economics here at SSE, about her extensive research in retirement reform and, more recently, health and longevity reform. Johanna is a professor in the Department of Economics at the Stockholm School of Economics, as well as a CEPR Research Fellow and a Wallenberg Academy Fellow. She's been with us here at SSE since 2010, and before that she studied at the Helsinki School of Economics and Arizona State University, gaining several accreditations along the way, including not only her Wallenberg Fellowship, but also being awarded SSE Researcher of the Year in 2017. Her research interests are in the field of macroeconomics, labour economics and household economics. Hi, Johanna. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here. I'm doing great. Great. Before we dive into your research, I'd love to hear more about you and your journey.
1: So to start off, have you always known that economics was your thing? I I grew up in an academic family, so I guess, you know, I jokingly say I had no real world role model. um, So I was destined for academia. Um, But I guess what attracted me to economics uh, was the interplay between you know, it being a social science, but a quantitative one. So I always liked math, uh, but I liked the idea of uh, figuring out what may, you know, how people respond to incentives and, and, and how people behave and why and, 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 and so forth. So that, that was kind of the, the attraction for me with, with economics.
0: And then what drew you to then the maybe more specific fields of, they're quite broad still, I guess, but labour and household economics, what took you in that direction?
1: So I think there's probably a lot of just path dependence uh, for most most researchers, I guess. I mean, those years in the PhD program are, are super influential. So I, I went to Arizona State University for, for my PhD, um, and I was very fortunate to be mentored by by professors Ed Prescott and, and Richard Rogerson. And that, you know, it's really largely due to them that sparked sparked my interest and... I was in uh, taking a class that that you know the now now late Nobel uh, laureate Ed Prescott was teaching, um, and he was talking about um, why Americans work so much more than Europeans. And you know, I'm like a second year student or something, and I naively ask a question about, well, what about like the Nordics and stuff? And he says, "Great question. Why don't you give a presentation about that on Monday?" <laughs> and I thought uh oh that'll teach me to open my mouth right um but of course she gave me some guidance he gave me some things to read and you know what morphed in what became first a presentation morphed into a research proposal and largely set like the agenda not just for my ph the rest of my phd but kind of put me on the path that i still am today <laughs> oh, that, that's that's really amazing to hear i guess on that note kind of for other students mm-hmm. who might be
0: interested in pursuing a phd and perhaps even you know a lifelong korean academics would you have any advice for them? I mean, obviously you had great role models, but anything else?
1: Um, I think just you know be curious, talk to people, uh, talk to talk to faculty and you know uh, professors, instructors, and you know, that will kind of spark spark your interest in something and I think the most important thing is to, is to be passionate and, and excited about whatever it is that you end up end up working on. Um, that sounds like pretty good advice. Let's get into your
0: research now and we'll start with retirement reform. I'll read a little excerpt mm-hmm. here um, from one of your papers. Population aging places enormous pressure on traditional pay-as-you-go social security pro- uh, programs where taxis levied on current workers are used to fund benefits to current retirees. In many countries, solvency of Social Security in the future will require people to work longer, benefits are cut or Social Security contributions like taxes are increased. What is the picture here that you're like trying to address with retirement reform? In a lot of your papers, we see that it's a relevant and pressing issue. And we heard a bit of, you know, these are some of the issues that we're facing. But How would you maybe summarize? You know, why? Why should we be concerned with this?
1: Yeah. I mean, so people are living longer, which is good. <laughs> people are also having fewer children. Um, so that means that the population is aging, which means that there's more retired people per, per working people than, than, than in the past. And that's forecasted to, you know, a trend that, that's just going to keep going. Um, and that's true of a large part of the world. Um, and so that means that in order for these retirement programs to remain solvent, something needs to be done and of course there's there's different things that that we could contemplate but you know as as economists um we like to think that we we have something to offer to to that debate um some way of of guiding that to thinking about how to think about these different alternatives um and in particular something that i've uh, you know uh wanted to stress lately is that also thinking about the fact that people uh, are different uh, you know that's that's true throughout their life but that's particularly true of older people um, and that, that's something that we need to keep in mind when we think about these alternative policy measures yeah and so w- w-
0: your approach is you de- you develop dynamic structural life models how do how do those work how are you seeing kind of how these incentives work basically
1: yeah so I mean I think the the fun thing about these these models is um, that the idea is that we're kind of We're running simulations, Um, so so we're imposing some structure. We're making some assumptions about you know what people care about that they that they care about consumption, that they care about their leisure time, things like this, and then then we're uh, you know assuming that they also face face some constraints, they they a budget constraint for example, right, and then uh, we're using kind of this this structure um, to to learn. How people would behave in, in hypothetical scenarios. So the advantage of 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 this type of approach is that you can ask, uh, what would happen if the government raised the minimum retirement age, um, for example, without actually having to implement that reform and then waiting many years and getting data, you know, comparing data from before and after. But you can you kind of have this 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 way of asking these. Questions about uh, at, not yet implemented reforms or hypothetical reforms—you kind of contrast uh, contrast different reforms. So use the model to kind of learn about learn about those those things
0: sounds very cool i'm sure it's far more complex um, but you i mean it's great hearing you speak about it I, and you touched upon the strengths you know this mm-hmm. kind obviously then you don't have to spend as much money you don't have to wait as long but what would some of the you know weaknesses of a model like this be is it that it's hypothetical or you know
1: yeah, I mean, any model is is an abstraction of reality. So we're always, you know, and in, in order for the model to be useful, it has to be. You know, not everything can go in the model. Um, so we have to kind of pick and choose what what goes in the model, um, and that, of course, means that you're you're making sometimes rather some rather strong assumptions that that can matter. So of course, we as 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 the modelers uh, have to be cognizant of that, and, and we try to, you know, varying degrees. Uh, you know, test how how, you know, relaxing one assumption or, or changing one assumption how, how that matters. But of course, you know, at the heart of it, these models are are abstractions of, of reality. Mm.
0: And then You've looked at dif- in these models then, mm-hmm. you've looked at different countries like the US and even Norway. Um, but when we spoke uh, you know, at the start of this, we talked about how it's a global issue. Mm-hmm. We recently heard in France about kind of retirement age that people are protesting, that they're thinking of extending it. And I still remember in each of my high school geography classes learning about Japan and its aging population. Mm-hmm. Um, from your perspective, from your wide knowledge, how are different countries not only like assessing this issue, but then also kind of reacting to it?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. I mean, um, given that it, it it is an issue that affects many countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, of course, also means that anything we do learn has, has relevance for, for many countries. Uh, and it potentially gives us an opportunity to try to learn from, from each other's experiences. Um, like like you mentioned the case of France, I mean, reform is hard. Um, it's It's not... You know, um, my work is is typically focused on kind of you know if the government does X, what happens? If the government does Y, what happens? But then, of course, another level of this is when the government tries to do X, <laughs> uh, then you know that that's not always entirely unproblematic um, in and of itself. So there are there are kind of common common themes uh, in some sense. Uh, I mean, given given population aging, most countries are thinking about some sort of uh, Long, a lot of countries think about some sort of longevity adjustment that's something that you know future cohorts uh, will see uh, their benefits reduced uh, kind of and that that reduction is related to, how long they live or, you know, or how long those cohorts are expected to live or, or you know, how, the, how the demographic t- shift is, is happening. A lot of countries uh, have contemplated some raising or have even tried or are in the process of raising uh, the minimum, minimum age at which you can collect uh, retirement benefits. And, and these are some of the things that we've, we've seen countries, um, countries try. I know that the last
0: time we spoke, mm-hmm. you talked about this carrot and stick mm-hmm. metaphor, and it's kind of this yeah. balance between how governments can, you know, be generous and reasonable in providing support for their their population when they retire, but also you also then mentioned when we spoke these alternative pathways that they're basically fearful people will abuse. Would you mm-hmm. mind talking yeah. maybe a bit more about sure, that?
1: Sure, sure, yeah. And I think one of the things that um, is quite intuitive, but that becomes clear uh, from from the type of research that I do, is that. It's you know, carrots are good if we can provide incentives for people to. So so, or let me put it this way: um, that you know, given that people are living longer, uh, it seems quite reasonable to think that one of the the things that will adjust uh, is that people will will work longer. But uh, in order to for, to make that happen, um, then it's important for the government to provide incentives for that that continued employment and this is kind of where the the carrot versus the stick comes in Um, you know if people see an increase in their benefits if they continue to work past a certain age that can for example create a powerful incentive to for them to remain employed you know beyond that that early eligibility age Whereas, so that's kind of that's the carrot, right? The stick is, we'll say you just kind of say, well, you can't collect old age retirement benefits before a certain age, and we're going to raise that age from 62 to 65 or 65 to 67 or or whatever. Um, And so that's that's the the stick, and the problem with that potentially is that then people, some people. Uh, will look for alternative pathways into, into retirement. If, we, if governments make it too hard to collect old age retirement benefits, we might well see an increase in disability benefit collection, unemployment benefit collection, uh, and so forth. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that I like to stress is that, you know, governments should really think about providing incentives for people to, to remain employed uh, rather than trying to block uh, block avenues uh, because then, you know, they, they might try to find a, uh, people might t- try to find a work And
0: then related maybe mm-hmm. to bring it home yeah. then, we also spoke about Sweden has this new retirement reform. Do you think that was, it's going to work or what would your opinion of, is that something that maybe other countries should be following or is it also a country specific thing?
1: Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think the, um, in and of itself, it's it's impressive to be able to implement large-scale pension reform and to do it kind of before you're in the midst of a massive crisis Uh, i think that that's that's really you know um big 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 points for that Uh, this is just me speculating Uh, i think perhaps one of the reasons why uh sweden is successful in implementing that with kind of broad broad support is that it's being phased in over a very long long time period Uh, so no one particular cohort is seeing you know, the, the drastic change, rather, it's, it's being gradually phased in. Um, and I think, um, and that, of course, means, uh, kind of related to my research, means that it's very hard to do a purely empirical analysis of that because you don't have data before and after, I mean, it's going to take us a really long time to be able to do just a purely empirical assessment of that. So something like these structural models that we we talked about can actually help us help us assess this. So I actually have have a project where we looked at that uh, and uh, with with a co-author um, and um, and we forecast good things. We, we we think that you know according to our model uh, employment will will go up uh, a fair bit um, with with this pension reform, and I think the. One thing coming kind of back to the the carrot and the stick. Uh, this is a, a mix of that in the sense that if people were to retire early, uh, relatively speaking, uh, in the new system, they get less than in the old system, but they see more of, of an increase in their benefits if they continue to work. Whereas in the old system, kind of benefits tended to, to level off and there wasn't really a big incentive to stay working once you became eligible for benefits. And now there clearly is, is much more of this. Um, so that's, that's one of the, the positives.
0: Well, that's it's nice to hear yeah. that it's good things on yeah. the way. Um, I asked on a similar mm-hmm. question in our uh, in our previous episode. I mean, you've done all of this amazing research and your findings are very relevant. And when you explain them, I mean, it's it seems all very reasonable. You're, it seems straightforward. Even, you know, finding this balance is even if it's a difficult task, yeah. it's you've laid it out incredibly well, or at least I, you've helped my understanding immensely. I'm curious about this like relationship for then You've studied policy reforms mm-hmm. and then through that, some maybe advice to the policy makers. And my question is that relationship between maybe politicians or policymakers, and between you as a researcher, you mentioned before mm-hmm. that economists, you, you keep an eye on things and you have mm-hmm. some pretty good ideas. Yeah. How What does that relationship look like? Are they receptive or I know that in the previous, obviously in Ukraine right now, it's a time of crisis. Mm-hmm. So they're receptive to policy changes they need them but you also mentioned that Sweden was doing a good job because it's replying before there's a crisis so yeah. what does that relationship look like
1: um I think that that varies across countries and I think that also varies you know um, based on the individual researcher I think and it's it's partially partially you know on on both sides to to be receptive and and to, to do their due diligence and I think I personally think that I probably should do a little bit better job of uh, of making those connections and, and reaching out, given how how uh, relevant. Um at least I like to think <laughs> my stuff is for, for the policy circles. I do have, you know, some dialogue. I've been invited to give seminars uh, at various policy institutions and ministries of finance and, and, and so forth. So 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 there is that that um, exchange of ideas, but probably that's something that, you know, we could on both sides be be even better at
0: yeah when but then when you are in these kind of circles Mm -hmm. and seminars and also listening to everything you've discussed kind of we discussed kind of how much it would cost to set up a big experiment like this but then also when it comes to implementing the reforms themselves do you in your research also estimate how much it would cost and all and if so what what kind of are those compared to when does it become a reasonable amount for some of these reforms and when does it cross where it's like oh it would be nice, but the price tag's too big. That kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean that, that's a really good question. I mean, I think when 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 thinks about these things, one always has to think about um, how are these things going to going to be funded, and um, and it really matters how they're funded. Um, so that is something that that we try to try to think about. Um, most of my work has focused on kind of um, comparing systems. Um, and comparing, you know, and then looking at the tax burdens associated with those systems, and and so forth, and and the ability of those those systems to be solvent or fiscally sustainable, and so forth. Uh, I haven't really focused on the transition so much. From you know, we're now in this system. How do we get to get to the other system? Um, but that's that's certainly something that's that's also interesting to to think about.
0: And then on the cost of funding mm-hmm. i think i'll use that as a little leeway yeah. to your current working paper yeah. can wealth buy health so there is another question yeah. about the price tag again you know the costs and how much of a difference money um can make and i'll read one line from your paper just yeah. struck out to me when i read it which was The gap in life expectancy at age 25 between college graduates and high school graduates in the U.S. is 5.5 years for men. Now this paper covers health and longevity reform. I mean, those numbers are shocking. How 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 did they how did they come about and what are you what are what is it that you're looking into now?
1: Yeah, no, they are. The, these differences in health and longevity uh, over education, over income are, are very large. Um, the, this 5.5 years is for the U.S., and the U.S., that, that's a striking number. We do see not quite as large, but also, also very large differences also in, in Sweden and the other Nordic countries and, um, and so forth. So this is, this is kind of a, a general pattern, not, not just limited to, to the U.S., um, and very recently, I've just, together with, with a co-author, become interested in trying to understand what the, what the drivers of, of this inequality are and what the potential role for, for policy reform would be in kind of mitigating, mitigating these, these inequalities.
0: And then in that paper is what well, talking then about what are the drivers between mm-hmm. these differences? In one part of the paper, it says that differences in, for example, access to resources and health insurance coverage alone cannot fully account for this kind of socioeconomic economic gradient mm-hmm. in life expectancy. What is it that you're finding? What what is behind these gaps?
1: Yeah. yeah so so it's it's a mix of things. So so um so it's true that uh, more educated, uh, higher income individuals. You know, not only do they have higher incomes, uh, but they also have have better uh, health insurance, particularly in the U.S. But um, beyond that, people impact their health through through different channels. So it's not just through uh, monetary investments that, that people influence their health, but people also make 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 choices, you know, uh, in their everyday life, um, and people. Do, do things that have a positive impact or or alternatively a negative impact on on their health. So examples of positive behaviors are things like exercise, eating a healthy diet. Negative behaviors are things like things like smoking or excessive drinking or overeating and, and, and so forth, right? Um, and this is something that in this project uh, we, we stress that um, there's also a socioeconomic gradient to this type of behavior. So uh, more educated individuals spend more time on what we term kind of health promoting activities. So they spend more time on, on exercise, for example, um, that has a positive impact on, on their health. And, and this interacts with all the other things that, that they do um, and, and plays, a, plays a big role.
0: And what would, for the time, like having, because I'm guessing if they spend more time on exercise, they will somehow have more time for the exercise. How, why are they, why do they have these preferences, and why is there that differences in pref, difference
1: in preferences? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really good question, and that's that's something that, um, you know, when we kind of set up our model, that's, that's something that in order to rationalize the data, this is what the model is telling us, that... Um, That these more educated individuals either have to, you know, so so first off, I should say that you know, in order to rationalize the fact that if, you know, all the experts say exercise is so good for us, and in the data people do shockingly little of it, I mean, obviously not everyone, but Mm -hmm. on, on average, we, you know, people do surprisingly little of it given given the big health benefits. So in order to rationalize that, you have to think this can't be something that people enjoy. Not not the majority of people anyway. Um, so what the model is then telling us to kind of match these patterns that we see in the data, uh, people must dislike exercise and less educated individuals must dislike it more. Otherwise it's we can't kind of rationalize what the behavior that we're seeing. Now you can of course ask is that truly kind of preferences or is that really something more about Health literacy, uh, or you know, understanding of, of the benefits of, of exercise, and I think perhaps the you know the differences in preference are kind of proxying for that in, in our in our framework that um, that more educated people are, are more aware of the health benefits, and therefore uh, you know um, the utility cost of engaging in that activity is, is lower when, when you're kind of realizing that that you know this is beneficial um, for and you. Then-
0: this kind of knowledge, I know we touched upon it a bit when we spoke last time, because thinking to the kind of things we might've heard of in class. And one of those things I remember from management mm-hmm. is Maslow's hierarchy. And there we learn, you know, you can't really start, you can't reach for your top needs, you know, self-fulfillment, those kind of things without reaching your basic needs. And what you might imagine, or a general, it is a generalization, mm-hmm. but people lower income, less economically favorable situations, still are trying, you know, to tackle their basic needs. I mean, we, you mentioned that one of those positive behaviours is a healthy diet, but that might be one of the more expensive things to acquire.
1: So could that be related to any of these differences? Absolutely. So that's that's not directly something uh, that's in our framework, but it's a very good point. And there, there is some work uh, on this by a young researcher... Uh who, who has her, uh, we call it a job market paper. So this was kind of when she was, uh, was graduating with her, her PhD last year. She was looking exactly at um, looking at specifically obesity and looking at a healthy diet um, and that a healthy diet is indeed more expensive than than a less healthy one uh, and looking at um, the implications thereof uh, for um, for kind of these these gradients that we see in, in, in health.
0: So when you have these two different research papers, so they are so close in kind of the topic that they're tackling, like relevance between the two, how, how do you merge those? Is it up to them, more the policymakers to say, okay, they've looked at the impact of kind of knowledge, the differences in uh, you know, longevity between these income groups and seen that there could be some correlation between x, y and Z? And then she's done this paper on uh, obesity. Is it up, who who and how do you put those two together to maybe come to the main point or is it that's when is that when intuition comes in and the data can't
1: do much more or yeah I guess I mean all science is kind of or most science is incremental and we're all kind of just you know adding adding blocks and, and build building up then at some point uh, you know there's there's enough evidence compounded that, that some things become... Uh, become more more universally acknowledged or accepted. Um, and then and then perhaps it, it pops on on the radar also of of you know people that are not working on those things that it becomes more 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 broadly known. Um, but it is, I mean, it is a challenge. Chal- I mean, it's, it's it's wonderful. We need all these people working on these things and, 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 you know, learning learning from each other. But it, of course, is a challenge for someone from the outside to, to see this this mass of, of, of work being done and to, to kind of weed, weed their way through it. Um, I yeah. can imagine it yeah. would be a yeah. difficult task. But talking about the kind of Interests or people
0: on their, you mentioned radars. Mm-hmm. What's on your radar next? You have this working paper on can wealth By health, mm-hmm. and I'm sure we all look forward to seeing what the final answer is. But is there anything else you you have a lot of experience? But what what's next for you?
1: Um, so a couple of different things. Um, so so one thing um, that I'm really interested in at the moment um, is understanding. Well, it kind of dry uh, kind of links up to this this broader theme of of. Uh, of you know risks and uncertainties over the life cycle and interacting with with social insurance and, and government policy and stuff like that. So one, one thing that that I'm looking at um, together with, with with others is is thinking about um, single mothers uh, and why such a large fraction of single mother families live live in poverty, uh, and trying to understand. Um, the, the implications of, of alternative to policies you know so welfare policy expansions versus childcare subsidies you know what are, what are the implications for uh, female employment um, marriage fertility all, all of these all of these things um, that's that's one thing um, I'm also kind of related to my my interests on, on retirement and stuff like that uh, together together with um, with a postdoc here at, at SSE thinking about um, uh, unemployment uh, risk uh, over the life cycle, and what what the implications of a job loss are at different stages um, in in the career, and how that interacts with with uh, retirement policies and 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 so forth. So those are those are a couple of things that are on the radar. <laughs> they sound very cool to me. I don't know if I'm at the point yet
0: where I could understand all the math and all the thoughts that go into it, but I think it's I think it's really cool. And I mean, you also mentioned just quickly that Mm -hmm. science is incremental, you know, you're adding to this knowledge in all the knowledge that you've gained over your many years in the field. What's the most interesting thing that you've ever learned or one of the most interesting things? (laughs) Oh,
1: wow. That's, that's a big question. Um, I guess it's just, you know, we're taught from, from a young age as economists, I guess, you know, that it's all about uh, understand that economics is all about understanding how, how people respond to, respond to incentives and that's really really what I do but there's there's these you know there's these little insights that ex post kind of seem seem obvious but that that you know um, we learn through the the lens of the model um, things like like raising the raising the minimum retirement age is people are just gonna you know claim disability in greater numbers or, or something like that. Um, um, these are the so there's there's kinda like a bunch of little examples of, of people responding to, to incentives um and, and that that's kind of I guess what, what I would say. <laughs> that's that's
0: wonderful. I guess you're always in for a little bit of a surprise when yeah. you go into a new question. Yeah. I think we'll end it here with a huge thank you to you, Johanna, for joining us today. And a big thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. I hope you've all learned as much as I have. Until next time, this has been Sound Economy. Thank you.